4, verses 13 through 35. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. This passage records uh, Jesus' time with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word that's given to us this morning. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all of these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. As you recall from last week, we considered 
Jesus' resurrection from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, and we considered particularly the significance that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. That detail is not arbitrary. It teaches us that Jesus, in rising from the dead on the first day of the week, was establishing a new holiday, reordering our calendars. Jesus was changing the Sabbath day from primarily being on the seventh day, seventh day to now being on the first day of the week. We also saw the connection of this passage to Advent. One of the main ways in which we celebrate Jesus' first Advent and look forward to Jesus' second Advent is through celebrating the holiday that Jesus instituted every week, every Lord's Day. The next question that comes to mind then is, what types of activities are we supposed to do in order to celebrate this holy day? Just like once, uh, once December rolls around and we're in Advent season, many of us, one of the first questions we ask each Christmas season is, well, what day of the week does Christmas land on this year? And then we ask, well, what are we going to do on Christmas this year? Are we traveling? Are we staying in? In a similar way, these are the types of questions we need to ask about this holy day that Jesus is instituting. What day of the week does it land on? That's what Jesus uh, answered yesterday, uh, last week. It's the first day of the week. And now, in this passage, we learn what types of activities we are to engage in as a means of celebrating this day and Christ's two advents. There are three references in this passage, in verse 13, verse 21, verse 33, that tell us that this passage occurs on this first Easter Sunday. This is still Resurrection Day, that first Resurrection Day. Luke is giving us a glimpse into how Jesus spent this first Lord's Day with his disciples. And I believe that Jesus, and by extension Luke as he records this, is intending this to be an example for us, a pattern for us, not just the apostles, but also for us as the New Covenant Church. Now you'll notice that this passage begins with reference to these two disciples who were present when these women came back from the empty tomb on Easter morning and, re and recounted what they witnessed and this vision that they had of these angels. Now these two disciples, one of which is named Cleopas, the other one is left unnamed, these two disciples are traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. We don't know much about Emmaus, but these two disciples may be returning home after their celebration of Passover. Either way, we learn that they are traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Luke tells us that they were talking and discussing about the many things that, have, that had recently taken place. And think about the things that had recently taken place. Jesus' triumphal entry 
when he mounts not a war horse, but a humble donkey. Jesus' time in the temple, his interactions with the religious leaders, his arrest, his trial, his condemnation, his suffering, his crucifixion and burial. There's a lot to talk about. Now this word for discussing that we hear in verse 15 could also be rendered debate or argue. This discussion may have been a little bit heated as they were going back and forth about the meaning and significance of what has recently taken place uh, uh, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. While they're discussing these things, talking about these things, we learn that a third person joins them on this road. Jesus himself comes alongside these two disciples. Now notice how Luke emphasizes Jesus' presence. Jesus himself joins them on this road. This is Jesus' first appearance after his resurrection. As we're reading Luke's gospel, we're meant to be amazed at this. Jesus himself is present. He is risen. The empty tomb did mean that he conquered death and hell. Now Jesus approaches these two disciples and asks them, uh, you know, well, what are you talking about? Well, why are you getting so, uh, so, so heated and argumented? Uh, why are you so argumentative? What are you talking about? And Cleopas turns to Jesus with a face of, of, of shock and unbelief. Seriously? Are you the only one in these parts who hasn't heard what has taken place in the recent days? Are you really asking us this question? Now we're meant to feel some, something of the irony that's present here. Cleopas, who at this time is ignorant of the true meaning and interpretation of these events, is asking all-knowing Jesus, Jesus who was raised from the dead, Jesus who has got himself, Jesus who has conquered death and hell and is the true prophet of God, if he is the only one who's ignorant of these recent events. And Jesus plays a little bit dumb here and says, what things? Cleopas responds and says, well, Jesus of Nazareth. And these two disciples go on and recount what's taken place. They refer to how Jesus was this great and mighty prophet and how Jesus, as this great and mighty prophet, was handed over and even crucified by his own people. And they say, and we thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And that is part of the reason why they are so depressed and downcast. Talk about crushed expectations. They thought that Jesus was this mighty prophet, this long-awaited Messiah who was going to redeem Israel. Now, their definition of redemption here was very earthly and political in nature. They were thinking that Jesus was going to come and finally redeem the Jewish people from the grip of the Romans. But rather than doing that, Jesus died. Jesus willingly was handed over betrayed, 
and crucified. Talk about crushed expectations. These disciples recognized that Jesus was a prophet, but they had no category for the prophetic pattern of suffering, rejection, and death. Now these two disciples go on and they say, and it's now even the third day since this has happened. Now here we also see a, a, a bit of irony. Three times in Luke's gospel, three times in Luke's gospel, in chapter 9, chapter 13, and in chapter 18, Jesus predicted before his disciples that he would rise from the dead on the third day. Here, the disciples are unknowingly acknowledging the legitimacy of Jesus' prophetic ministry. But yet, why do they reference the third day? They don't reference the third day as evidence that Jesus, Jesus is risen. They reference the third day as evidence for why the resurrection couldn't have taken place. It's three days. This is another nail in that proverbial coffin which testifies that Jesus actually is dead. How could that tomb be empty? It's three days since he died. Now one commentator speaks about this recounting of recent events by Cleopas as the gospel according to Cleopas. But notice what's missing here. What's missing here is the resurrection. What this tells us is that any account of Jesus' life which misses the resurrection is no longer gospel. It's no longer good news. Well, Jesus finally responds and gets a word in. So you'll see in verse 25, he says, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now this interjection, oh, which is reflected in, in the original language as well, uh, communicates uh, emotion and pathos. Oh, foolish ones, ignorant ones, clueless ones, how slow of heart you are to properly interpret your own scriptures. Jesus continues in verse 26 and says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer all of these things and enter into his glory? And then verse 27, which is arguably one of the most instructive verses in all of scripture, Jesus uh, or Luke tells us, And beginning with Moses, and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them, or to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now step back for a moment and, and recognize what Jesus is doing here. Jesus knows that these disciples have heard that the tomb is empty. However, these disciples are struggling with a proper interpretation of the empty tomb. What does this mean? Now, if I was Jesus, my initial impulse would probably be, look at me. <laughs> look at my wounds. I'm not dead. I'm alive. But what does Jesus do? He points to the Old Testament scriptures and tells them that the reason why they should interpret the empty tomb as evidence that Jesus is risen is because the Old Testament scriptures testify to not only a suffering Messiah, but a, a risen Messiah. Now this, 
tells us that we who are the people of faith are those who profess a, a certain sort of faith. And our faith is not governed by what we see with our eyes. Our faith is governed by what we hear with our ears in God's word. Which means that we don't believe the promises of scripture insofar as we see them visibly fulfilled and portrayed in our lives. No, we believe and rest God's promises that we hear with our ears because they come from God's infallible word. In fact, we are called to believe and rest in these promises that we hear with our ears even when our circumstances, which we see with our eyes, seem to testify against those promises. Or as Paul says, faith is not by sight, but rather it's uh, one in which we live according to our ears. Well, Jesus also reference is in verse 27 here, Moses and the prophets. And this is shorthand for all of the Old Testament. Moses is the, uh, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets is, is essentially everything else. And Luke especially wants us to know the comprehensive nature of Jesus' sermon. He repeats this word all three times in verse 25 and 27. Verse 25, O foolish one, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. And then verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them um, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Notice the repetition of that word all. This is a comprehensive sermon. Jesus is showing us that he is the telos of every single Old Testament passage. Furthermore, this connection between verse 26 and verse 27 is very important. So verse 27, Luke and, and is telling us or giving us a principle that is to guide our interpretation of, of the Old Testament. And what's that principle? That we are to interpret the Old Testament in a Christ-centered way. Verse 26, however, adds some specificity to that. the question that comes to mind, if we are to interpret the Old Testament in a Christ-centered way, what Christ are we to center upon? One of the inclinations of sinful human beings is to create a Christ after their own image. That's what the disciples did. They wanted Christ to conform to their expectations. They wanted a Christ who was going to fight their cultural battles, to push their political policies, to free them from, the Ro from Roman rule. And we do the same thing in our own day and age. There are those who make Christ uh, a political or a social justice activist or a cultural warrior, depending on what side of the aisle you land on. There are those who turn Jesus into a self-help psychological guru. What type of Christ are we to be looking for in the Old Testament? Well, verse 26 tells us, the Christ who suffered all these things and entered into his glory. Meaning we are to center upon the Christ of the cross and the resurrection. That is the Christ that we are to be looking for in all the scriptures. 
Therefore, verse 27 gives us a principle, and then verse 26 adds some specificity to that principle. The first question, then, we are to ask when we are seeking to interpret any Old Testament passage is how does this particular passage lead to Christ? Or to put it another way, how does this particular passage, how is this particular passage fulfilled by Christ? And then, only after we uh, answer that question, can we see how that passage applies to me or to you in your own particular context. It's very important that we keep the order of these questions in place. The first question we need to ask and answer is how does Scripture point to Christ? Not how does Scripture apply to me. That's important, but it comes second. And this is actually one of the errors that the medieval church fell into during that period of time before the Reformation. They mixed up the order of these questions. They sought, especially with the Old Testament, to make a one-to-one application between themselves, or between the Old Testament and themselves. As a consequence, pastors became priests. Simple worship in unadorned buildings was replaced with these grand the construction of these grand cathedrals, which mirrored the opulency of, of the Old Covenant temple. Communion at the Lord's table was replaced with a re-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Pope, the head of the church, led militaristic battle like David of old. So you can see how the medieval church read the Old Testament and made a one-to-one application between the Old Testament and themselves. Thus, one of the recoveries of the Reformation was a recovery of the hermeneutic that Jesus is teaching us here in Luke 24. Scripture is, first of all, about Christ, and then only secondarily about us. Well, these two disciples, after they hear this Christ-centered sermon on the road to Emmaus, they arrive to at uh, in Emmaus and they urge Jesus to stay with them and to share a meal with them and Jesus eventually accepts this invitation and we read that Jesus becomes the host of of this meal so if you look with me at verse 24 verse 30 the disciples and Jesus are in Emmaus and we read when Jesus was at table with them he took the bread and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Notice that language. Jesus takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it. This should call to mind Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, which we heard about in Luke chapter 9. So pay attention and listen to Luke chapter 9, verse 16. And this is in the context of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them, Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Notice the similarity. Jesus took bread. Jesus blessed bread. Jesus broke bread. And Jesus um, gave this bread to the disciples. We also should think back to Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper in Luke chapter 22. 
Verse 19, which says, And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. Again, notice the semantic similarity. Jesus took bread. He blessed it or, or gave thanks over this bread, broke it and gave it. So these three meals are united based on this, this, this semantic similarity that Luke includes in all three of these uh, meal accounts. Another thread that unites these three meals together is this theme of literal bread being connected to Jesus' physical presence. So in the feeding of the 5,000, the main principle or point that we learn from that narrative is that true life comes through eating the very flesh and blood of Jesus. It's especially the point that John brings out of that account. And eating is meant to be a metaphor for faith. So the way in which we enter into true life is by being united to the risen Christ by faith. And that theme is set next to this literal bread, the feeding of the 5,000. Institution of the Lord's Supper. Jesus, speaking in reference to the bread, says, Take, eat, this is my body. So you have the connection between literal bread and Jesus' physical presence. And now, here in this passage, in reference to this meal, look with me in verse 31. We read, And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. When did these two disciples recognized the identity of Jesus. What was the setting? The meal over the breaking of bread. And then verse 35, after these two disciples returned to Jerusalem to inform the eleven of their experience, we read, Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Luke emphasizes the fact that they came to recognize the presence, the resurrected presence of Jesus in the breaking of bread. Now these two meals, the feeding of the 5,000 and the meal in Luke chapter 24, they're not the Lord's Supper, but they are echoes of the Lord's Supper, or you could say they're symbolic of the Lord's Supper. And insofar as they are symbolic of the Lord's Supper, the, these themes teach us that in the Lord's Supper, we are to recognize Christ's resurrected presence. Just as these disciples recognized that Jesus in the breaking of bread, we are to recognize Jesus' presence when we break bread at the communion table. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29, the Apostle Paul says, in reference to the Lord's Supper and how we should partake in a worthily manner, he says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Now, what does Paul mean when he uses this term body? Whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body. Well, the primary reference that Paul has in mind is the human nature of Jesus, the physical body of Jesus. That's how Paul uses that word in in, in, in this passage's immediate context. So to put it another way, Paul is saying, whoever eats and drinks without discerning the physical body of Jesus, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Or to put it positively, we are to recognize the physical presence of Jesus when we eat the supper. 
which shows us why there is an appropriate level of maturity that's needed to partake of the Lord's Supper, especially when it comes to, to children and when they should commune at the table. There needs to be a proper recognition of the body of Christ in the elements. Now, of course, you don't need to pass the theology exam, but we need to recognize that the eating of bread and wine is not Sunday lunch. It's not a trite um, um, traditional right that we do for the sake of doing it. Jesus is present. Now, of course, he's not present by coming down and inhabiting the bread and wine, but he's present as by the Spirit through faith we are raised up to have communion with him in heaven. So let's step back for a moment then. Notice what Jesus is doing on this first Easter Sunday. He gives a Christ-centered exposition of the Old Testament. He makes himself known in the breaking of bread. This is very instructive for us in terms of how we should celebrate the Lord's Day. We should gather together on that first day of the week to hear Christ proclaimed in all the scriptures. What Christ? Not Christ the cultural warrior or social justice activist or self-help guru, but the Christ of the cross and the resurrection. That's the Christ we should be having ears to hear for, uh, ears to ears, eyes to see. And we are to break bread in the Lord's Supper. Now you might say, well, how do we know that Jesus was intending this to be a pattern for us as New Covenant Christians? Well, Luke, in his second book, seems to indicate that the apostles saw this as an example that Jesus was setting. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That's what governed their lives. Acts 20, verse 7, we see that on the first day of the week, the early church gathered to break bread in the Lord's Supper and to hear Paul preach. The same things that Jesus did in Luke chapter 24. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, oh yeah, when you gather on the first day of the week for worship, make sure you take up a collection. The apostles seem to interpret Luke 24 as being normative for their lives. Therefore, congregation of Christ, when we imitate this example that Jesus gives us, when we gather on the first day of the week and seek to hear a Christ-centered exposition of his word, to break bread in the Lord's Supper, we are following a very ancient pattern, a pattern that goes all the way back to Luke chapter 24, a, a pattern that's more ancient than Advent or Christmas or Easter, a pattern that goes back to Luke 24. That's astounding. We... We belong to a faith that's much older than Gig Harbor URC, Linden URC, even the Reformation itself. Our faith goes back to Luke chapter 24. And we seek to follow in that tradition and in that practice. And so this Advent season, as we think about the first coming of Jesus, as we anticipate the second coming of Jesus, Luke 24 instructs us that the main way in which we celebrate Jesus' incarnation the main way in which we anticipate and foreshadow his second coming is by gathering on the first day of the week to hear Christ proclaimed in all of the scriptures to experience his presence at the table of the Lord. And so, congregation of Christ, let us enjoy these holiday festivities. Let us pray.
Merciful Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus' resurrection, that he did conquer death and hell. And not only that, gave us a day in which we can rest and be refreshed, not only in terms of our souls, but also in terms of our bodies. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would appreciate anew uh, these practices that you have called us to. And we thank you for the freedom to enjoy these practices. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.